mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibiverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic. They make me feel polished and modern. And the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin. And so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20. Capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z Zibby 20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white open long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Corny America. Check it out. Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Com and definitely check out those shows as well.
Amy Bloom is the author of In Love, A Memoir of Love and Loss. And by the way, I loved this book. Amy Bloom is the author of four novels, White Houses, Lucky Us, Away, and Love Invents Us, and three collections of short stories, Where the God of Love Hangs Out, Come to Me, which was the finalist for the National Book Award, and A Blind Man Can See How Much I Love You, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her first book of nonfiction, Normal, Transsexual CEOs, Cross-Dressing Cops, and Hermaphrodites with Attitudes, is a staple of university sociology and biology courses. Her most recent book is the widely acclaimed New York Times bestselling memoir, In Love. She has written for magazines such as The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Vogue, Elle, The Atlantic Monthly, Slate, and Salon, and her work has been translated into 15 languages. She is the director of the Shapiro Center at Wesleyan University. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss In Love, a memoir of love and loss. I'm happy to be here. Great. This is a special podcast because we are doing this as a hybrid, also book club for Zibby's Virtual Book Club. So we will have a conversation, but also bring in questions from the book club group as well. Amy, for those who have not read your absolutely beautiful book, which by the way, I completely loved and adored, could you explain a little about what your book's about and even why you decided to take this time of your life and turn it into a book? Okay. I don't know that I would say that it was anything as internally directed as take this time in my life and turn it into a book. I'm not a memoir writer. I had no aspirations to be a memoir writer. I barely read memoirs. However, several years ago, my husband um, was diagnosed as having Alzheimer's and having probably had it for the preceding three years. And during that time, he made the decision, which did not surprise me, that he did not want to go through the next 10 years of the slow, sometimes not so slow, decline of Alzheimer's. And asked for my help in doing some research about how he might find a painless way to end his life when he felt it was time. And among the other things he asked me to do is he asked me to write about it because he felt this was a subject that people tended not to talk about, tended not to plan about, and certainly tended not to look at the details of. And he felt that it was important. I would say that for Brian, the right to choose in all points of one's life was always very important to him. This is a guy who had been a football player at Yale and since he was 19 years old had worked as an escort at the Planned Parenthood clinic up the street in New Haven and continued to do that for the next 40 years. Wow. Well, it was absolutely beautiful the way you wrote about it and the way you tracked the decline, the decisions that were made at the end, and all the individual moments of it. I think that was the most powerful were just the small moments at home, the interactions between the two of you, the research, yes, and all of what came next, but just the moments, the flashbacks, the moments were so poignant, I found. Ashley Rice here would like to ask you a question about structure. Sure. So Ashley. I was wondering about the structure of your book. It seemed the chapters are very short and I wondered if that was intentional based kind of on the way people with dementia and Alzheimer's kind of have a shorter thought wave. That's an interesting question. It is really based on the fact that you don't have to have dementia in the modern world to have a short attention span. And I thought that uh, really two things, but yes, it was intentional, but the intent was really to sort of 
in some ways, make the narrative bearable. I mean, I, I really did feel that 30 pages at a time of someone's decline from dementia or his exploring ways to end his life was just hard to take. And shorter allowed me to move back and forth through the past and the present. And th- that, that was very much intentional. I mean, I always saw the book as basically braiding together the more distant past, the near past, and the present. Thank you. It's a very beautiful book. Oh, thank you. Megan, we are in Jarvis. Hi, thank you so much for the book. I gave your book to a bunch of folks, mostly because I defined it sort of like as a as a love story that doesn't get written, that can't specifically be written except maybe only by you. I wanted to ask about writing from the wound versus sort of writing about the wound. What already was mentioned and was mentioned before you came on the call, the tightness and like the word I kept thinking was crisp, like the crispness of the writing, not just what's in the chapter, but also what's not in the chapter, that all the noise of what must have been around you is not there and which creates all this intimacy. I wanted to know about your process, like the emotional process. Were you writing knowing you were writing the story that your husband had asked you to write? Or was it sort of like that wrapping your head around the narrative so that it made sense to you? Does my question make sense? Yeah, no, I do understand. Yeah, I think maybe maybe it was a little easier for me. I mean, it didn't feel that way at the time, but because I'm a writer, like that's my gig. And so, you know, I would take Brian to his appointments or do whatever we were doing. And I might make a few notes in my office. And after his death at the end of January of 2020, well, two things happened. One is the pandemic fell down upon us. And so my younger daughter, her wife and their baby moved in with me for six months, which is not what I thought I needed, but it turns out somebody had a better idea. And it was, it was great. It was, there's an image in a, in a poem about um, a dead log in the forest that has fallen over and then the life that comes back in the dead log and the grass and the flowers. And that's really how it felt. So we would trade places so that my daughter and daughter-in-law could work in the morning because they they were in Brooklyn. They had no childcare and they had a very lively three-year-old and they were working full-time. So I would do baby care in the morning and then and then lunch, and then after lunch, they would take over, and I would come to my office, and it turns out you can type and cry at the same time. And that was what I did, but I, it, was not, it was not cathartic for me in the sense that it wasn't like journaling. I, I knew I was writing to be read, and I, I had a very funny interview with somebody who had said to me, oh, you know, did your husband ask you to write this book? And I was like, no, he told me, you know, he told me. There's something, I don't exactly know how to say this, but I do write memoir and I love memoir and I only read memoir. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't always love, like I care about the characters, but I think the reason I gave the book is like, I, I loved you both in the book. Like there was so much intimacy and constructed between you that even though we're complete strangers, I, you invited, you invited me, I won't speak for anyone else 
into, into not just the pain of the story, but like the exquisite love of the story. It, it really left me breathless and I'm very grateful to have read it. Oh, thank you so much. I did feel that, you know, you sort of shape it as you go along. And I, I did find myself thinking, oh, I want, I want, I want people to be able to see Brian. I didn't feel like I was going to be able to hide much of myself. And there was probably, you know, the good and the bad, but I really wanted people to be able to see Brian and see a person who was making this decision and how people come to it. So there you go. Sydney Barkas Dallas has a related question. Sure. Yes. Hi. Thank you for joining us today. I wanted to ask, uh, did you vacillate when you were writing? How did you work with your inner editor? And were there parts that you you said, no, I'm not going to put that in? And then you came back and said, I will. Were there things that, whether it was too intimate or too revealing, or if you just thought it was superfluous, or was it suddenly seeming like you were over-romanticizing Brian? Or was there anything in your your internal process where you really got hung up? Well, I have a pretty good relationship with my internal editor, but I also have a relationship with my external editor. And so at one point I had sort of turned in the first draft and my editor, whom I, we, we are very close and we have worked together for a very long time. She was like, I don't feel like you're saying anything about the development of his symptoms and what was that like? And I, I must've said to her three times, I think it's fine the way it is. I don't think you need any more information about that. People people know about Alzheimer's. They understand the kind of things that happen. And she was like, I really think you should let us see some of that. And each time I was like, no, I don't, I don't think it's necessary. And then finally, I sort of recognized that, of course, it was necessary and useful to people. But also, it was, I won't say it was unbearable because I wrote it, but it was hard to write. That was actually harder to write than almost anything else was sort of the you know, the growing list of symptoms, the signs of decline, because for most people, Alzheimer's really is a diagnosis that you only understand in hindsight. And, you know, so to look at the preceding three years and, you know, maybe even a little more and begin to ask myself questions about it, which are also fairly pointless, was was really hard. So that was that was my big struggle. I don't feel... I mean, you know, I sort of left out some of Brian's more annoying qualities because I did really want people to love him and see him. And I certainly didn't romanticize myself, but I don't think I romanticized it too much. I mean, it was it was it was a happy marriage. From the outside looking in, it comes across as extraordinarily real. And so, you know, it's it's only real to you and we accept it on faith and uh, and it's powerful. Thank you. Well, thank you. Daphne has has a quick follow-up question to one thing you've already mentioned. When I read this beautiful book, my first response and before you came on was that you wrote it. My guess was that you wrote it because it was your way of managing it. But now I'm understanding that you wrote it because Brian asked you to. My question is, would you have written it if he had not asked you to write it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, as I say, I, 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 you know, I, I think memoir is a great genre. I can't say I've never read a memoir. I think I've read three in my life. I thought they were all terrific. Not something that I ever found, you you know, I mean, I, to me, I was no more going to write a memoir than I was going to write a collection of limericks. 
And it was like, <laughs> not me, but Brian had a really strong wish about this. And I know that for him, part of what made it easier for him to leave this life that he enjoyed so much was knowing that I was going to write about it and that this story was going to get shared. And I, I know, I mean, I know that that mattered to him because he told me that. Diane Fien has another question. Thank you so much for writing this book and for being here with us today. I was so moved by it, but I also had this, this loud call in my heart about, about your feeling about him leaving at the time that he did. And I really, it was a burning question. I couldn't wait to, to, to speak, you know, or ask this question. If, you, if it was up to you totally, and he left it up to you 100%, would you have wanted him to leave at that point, or would you have wanted him to stay longer? If it was up to me, he wouldn't have had Alzheimer's, you know? No, no, but I mean, if, if given the reality of the situation. Given the reality of the situation and given Brian's wish to have a painless and peaceful and legal death, our choices were actually incredibly limited. You know, people would say things like, oh, but there are all these right to die states in America. But what people tend not to understand is that if you have dementia, there is none of those 10 states are available to you because you also have to have cognitive function. You have to be able to display judgment and discernment. Well, so if you are terminally ill and close to the end with dementia, you are not somebody who's going to have that kind of judgment. So I think for me, truly, I never, you know, what I wished is that he didn't have Alzheimer's. And I also wanted very much for him to have the kind of end of life that he chose. And if somebody had said, oh, we have magic and we can tell you that he can go another two years and still be himself and still feel at ease in the world and have his relationships and his own sense of self and dignity, of course I would have preferred that. But there was nobody who, who could tell us that at all. And partially because he had early onset Alzheimer's, it's it's not a it's not a slow moving river. It's a fairly rapid moving river. And I think one struggles, you know, with the wish to keep your beloved with you as long as possible, but also a, a wish to he felt so strongly about his wish to continue to be himself. We had seen Alzheimer's close up in our family and also early onset. And he, he was also a fairly combative and aggressive guy. And so when he said, I prefer to die on my feet than live on my knees, I not only knew that he meant it, he had meant it his whole life. And so, I mean, yes, I would have liked to have kept him to have kept him in this world with me as long as possible. But as it turned out, possible was not going to be that long. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mm. Can I ask one other quick question? Why did he want you to write this book? <laughs> well, two reasons. One is, to, to put it in the nicest possible way, he had a very, fairly strong sense of self. So there's that. He certainly thought he, it was worth writing about. And also he really cared about the subject. He had always cared about the subject of sort of right, right to choose your life, whether it was for Planned Parenthood, whether it was for end of life, whether it was for people who were disabled. I mean, just the right to choose was very, very important to him. And I think that's why he wanted me to write about it, because he thought, as he said, well, I could hurry up and try to write about it, but people aren't going to read it. You know, you write about it. People will read it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Elisa Marks. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, the book is beautiful. And when I tried to explain to people why they should read it and that it was a book about dying, but it was actually like warm and at times very funny. And like it, it made you feel very full and, and, and at times even joyous. So how, I guess my question is, is part of the process, did you intentionally infuse your humor to lighten it a little bit? Or is that just part of your relationship? And I just, it's remarkable to me that you could have a book that I kept telling people, it's about her husband, you know, facing his end of life, but it's so lovely. And you won't, you will feel down, but you won't feel down. It was a very hard thing to explain to people. So I'm curious in your process, how you were able to balance that. Well, I think mostly it's my nature, you know, possible I've sat at slightly more deathbeds than some other people, but one of my really formative experiences when I was uh, quite a bit younger was the man who had been sort of my surrogate father and a great mentor to me was in the hospital for the last time. And so I was driving down from Connecticut to, you know, sit by his bedside in the hospital. And his other really close friend, who was a man his own age, I mean, these, these were guys and they're probably about 80. I think I was about 40. And so I would come in and there would be like Wagner playing. And, you know, this old man sitting there, 
talking about the war, whatever it was. Nothing that made me feel particularly welcome. And he would see me and he would sigh and I would sigh. I don't mean my friend, I mean the other friend. And then he'd say, I'll go get a cup of coffee. You know, you guys visit. So I would then change the room freshener, change the music, bring him a cup of chamomile tea instead of the hospital coffee. And this would go on for days. And we would sort of take turns. And it made me laugh every time. I thought we are still fighting about who's his bestie, even, even as he's leaving this world. And I think, so I say, I think it's mostly my nature. I think this is a terrible and beautiful world. And things are just grievously painful and also pretty funny. Well, thank you. Because I mean, it just, it made the book just feel so much more close and personal because life is full of both sadness and comedy kind of all mixed in one. Um, and you just had the perfect balance in there for that. And, you know, it just, it, your relationship was so real thank from that. So thank you. Francine. Thank you so much for coming to be with us today and hearing from you. I loved your book. I will say that reading it kind of hit me in the face because my husband has shown some memory loss. Did you, uh, you mentioned that your husband had shown some like three week, three years prior to being diagnosed. Is that accurate? Yes. I mean, you know, part of what is so difficult, it seems to me around dementia is who's to say, how do you, and if you think it's your spouse, how, how do you get your spouse to go and get right. like a mini mental exam? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm driving. What are you talking about? Everybody forgets where they put their keys. What, you know, what are you doing? Why are you trying to do this? You know, and there were so many times when after Brian had decided that what he wanted to do was go to Dignitas, which is a, an accompanied suicide place in, in Switzerland where it's legal and painless. We had to find his birth certificate. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how, how are we going to do that? And Brian goes, I know where it is, goes upstairs, goes to his office, gets his birth certificate. At which point I'm like, I, th- th- this is the man who's going to end his life because of his loss of self? On the other hand, that same day, he was going to work on a stained glass project, which is about five minutes from our house. And we live in a very small town. And he left and he came back about two minutes later and he said, I don't know where it is. And he'd been going there for about three years. And so, you know, there are all these peaks and valleys of memory and cognition. I will say by the time, by the time our application was accepted in Switzerland, he had, for example, forgotten the names of all of our grandchildren. Loved them called everybody darling, could not summon up their names. And so, you know, it's it's this series of sort of pockets and ditches and obstacles that were overcome a few days ago, but no longer overcome and then will never be overcome again. It was that kind of process. And so I don't know what I would, I don't know that I would have done anything differently when the first signs were occurring. In the book, I write that I had written a, a script for a TV show I was working on. Brian was always a big reader of my work and I think really hoped that we would, we would move to LA. He 
left it on the floor on his bedside. And, you know, I didn't want to be like, oh, have you read my work? Is it great? But, you know, like after a couple of weeks, I said, honey, did you did you read the script? And he said, it's too hard to follow. And he said it with no, no chagrin, no embarrassment, just like, I don't know what's wrong with it, but it's, and this is a guy who had probably, I would say in his lifetime, had probably read 40 television scripts. He was like, it's too hard to follow. I don't understand the formatting. Well, you did a beautiful job of making us love him and you. It was a, I thought it was a beautiful love story. I liked the humor. I cried a lot in it. Thank you so much. And thank you for answering my question. And as I said, it was kind of smacked me in the face of like, whoa, some something. Can I, it, it's cha- you know, changed my way of looking at things around here. Right. And anything I can do, I realize you didn't ask me, but anything I can do to persuade you to get your spouse to go to his primary care physician and, you know, suggest that maybe this is just something to check out would be a gift. Thank you. Well, I would have asked, but now that you volunteered, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I will, I won't have any hesitation about that. Thank you so much. Thank you. We have time for a couple more questions. A.M. Richard. I do want to say how, I guess, amazing it was to me that you just did everything that Brian wanted you to do, even though that might have not been your choice. And you could have said, well, they haven't called me back or we can't find anything. Or you could have probably made up a million different excuses and just put it off, put it off, put it off. But you were just diligent about doing everything he asked, even when you would like stop and cry to yourself and struggled through that. How amazing that was to me that you did it for him. And that just as the book's called, like in love, like that love you have for him to do that, even though it hurt so deeply that is just so admirable. And I really admired that. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you. You know, I I, I don't think that in, in the rest of my life, anybody would describe me as sort of a milk toast or, you know, just, you know, so just, you know, an, a, a very dutiful wife. I, I don't even think I aspired to be a dutiful wife. But I also felt that he was so clear about what he wanted. And I did respect him. And I also understood the choice. I mean, I think if I had had, for example, a deeply moral or spiritual objection to his choice, I would have struggled even more. But I I did understand it. And we had seen what the end of life looked like with dementia. And it was it was just heartbreaking in our family. And I so I thought, I can do this. I certainly can't do it without crying all the time, but I can do it. So I will. Okay. Two more questions. Eileen and then Olivia. So um, thank you very much for being here this afternoon. I I really love the book and I thought it was brave in so many ways, brave in everything that you went through and brave in writing it and telling the story in the way that you did. The question that I have is not so much about the content of the book, but about the fact that you said that you don't like memoir and you don't like reading them and you don't like writing them. So I was wondering if there's anything that you did differently having read a few memoirs or that would have 
that made it, wanted you to make this different than other memoirs? No, I mean, there are a lot of great memoirs out there. It's, it's, it's not that I am uninterested in the genre because I think it's terrible. It's just, I mean, it, it's, it's not unlike the way I feel about science fiction. I have read two science fiction writers, Octavia Butler and Ursula Le Guin, and I feel that I am lucky to have read them and improved by reading them, but it's not a genre I'm drawn to. It was really very much the same thing. I mean, I thought, well, let, let, me, let me try to do a good job, but since it wasn't my wish in life to be a memoir writer, it was sort of, let me, let me do a good job with this one thing that, that God willing, I will never do again. Okay, and now Olivia Cohen Cutler. Hi, I am a great fan of your work. I always have been, I, beginning with the way. So I was excited to be able to read this new book, especially since it was such a departure from the things that you've done before. And what I would like to ask is, where did you find the bravery to be so vulnerable? Because in your other books, you are behind the characters. And in this book, you are the character, the person you love most is the character, and your story, which is deeply personal, is what you are offering to the world. Where did you find that bravery? I suppose the good news is that when you are in the middle of it, you don't notice so much. You know, when you're climbing the mountain, you don't want to look down. I just thought, I'm just going to put one foot in front of the other. I'm going to write about all the things that happened. I'm going to do my best to tell the truth. And um, I'm going to work very hard on not thinking about how much is revealed, which, by the way, I actually also do it with my fiction. I mean, I, I just try very hard not to think about <laughs> how much people will see or that they will see that they, you know, I once gave a reading. My sister was in the audience, my big sister, who's a ferocious uh, divorce lawyer. And it was an early story of mine about two sisters, one of whom was a schizophrenic and one of who and, and who um, in the end uh, dies at the end of the story. And a woman in the audience got stood up. She was lovely. And she said, I just want to tell you, I really understand what you have gone through because I, too, have a mentally ill sister, which point my sister. A fairly impulsive person leaps up and goes, I'm fine. <laughs> misunderstood the story and I'm like, you're not helping. But I think, you know, for me writing this, I just thought, well, people, people will see what they see. And my job is to tell this story. And my job is not to worry about how people judge me afterwards. Well, I, I don't think anyone judged you in any way, but a positive judgment. I think that this story is extraordinary. And the, the, the love story of it is extraordinary. And the way you told it is one that draws people in in a way that you simply don't see coming. It is really a masterpiece. Thank you for writing it. And thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for everything. I just have one quick question of my own, which is what, what do you miss the most about Brian today? Oh, I don't think there's a one thing. I mean, you know, I, I miss his being here in the world. I miss his being here for the grandchildren. I miss his being here for my children. All of those. I have a, I think I say in the, in the book, I have a tree. 
the Ryan's tree, which is in my yard and sort of surrounded by perennial white flowers. And that is something I'm really glad that I did. That was not his idea. That was my idea. And, you know, it's a way of having his presence. So for me, not one thing, but I will say one of the things that I certainly learned from him was, you know, to, to, to move forward and to not be daunted. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing all of your time with us and for sharing in love with the whole world and all of this time for our collective questions. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and everybody in the audience, <laughs> audience, so to speak. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for doing a live podcast for Zibby's Virtual Book Club. Thank you all for coming. Thank you so much. Okay. We'll see you next month, everybody. Okay. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 